Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Neil Love from Research to Practice, and welcome to Meet the Professor, as today we talk about the management of BRAF mutant melanoma with Dr. Jason Luke from the UPMC Hillman Cancer Center in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We have a great faculty for this series, and later on we'll show you the results of a survey we did of their usual treatment practices. As always, if you have any questions or cases you'd like to run by Dr. Luke, just type them into the chat room and we'll talk about as many of these as we can. As always, we're doing webinars all the time, and this week, uh, tomorrow, we'll be working with Dr. Oliver Sarter, talking about castration-resistant prostate cancer. On Wednesday, from Australia, we'll have Dr. Andrew Wee uh, talking about AML. And then on Thursday, leading up to next week's San Antonio meeting, Dr. Hope Rugo will be talking about HER2-positive breast cancer. Next week will be a wild week, as always, as it always is in this uh, week of the year with the Ash and San Antonio meeting. We'll start out. We're doing seven programs. They are going to be broadcasts live for you to uh, check out. Uh, we're doing three at the San Antonio meeting, starting on Tuesday, ER positive disease, Wednesday, HER2 positive, Thursday, triple negative, and then on Friday, as usual, the wild Friday satellite day. We'll start out early in the morning with CLL talk about lymphoma next, then myeloma, and then finally, if you can stick out in total, total eight hours, we'll be doing AML and MDS on next Friday night. But today, we're here to talk about BRAF mutant melanoma. The timing is really awesome. One of the most important presentations in the history of management of this disease has just happened. We'll get into that in a second. As we always do in these webinars, we're going to present real cases from practice. We have four general medical oncologists, Dr. Alan Friedman, Dr. Elizabeth Guanchel, Dr. Raji Shamin, and Dr. Syed Zafar. And these docs sit down with me and present CLL, myeloma, bladder cancer, and these are some of their BRAF cases. We also asked Dr. Evan Lipson, an investigator, uh, to come up with his top 10 list for Dr. Luke, and we'll hear uh, his questions as well. Uh, these are the uh, results of the faculty survey that we're going to get into later. We probably won't be able to go through all of these, but check out that as well as a bunch of other slides at the end of the slide deck and the appendix there, module four of key data sets. We're going to start out talking about the big DreamSeq study uh, presented uh, a couple weeks ago in the first uh, virtual uh, ASCO plenary uh, session, uh, as uh, ESMA has been doing for the last uh, six or eight months. This is the first one, it was the big uh, melanoma study. We'll get to that in a second. Then we got a bunch of cases. Then we're gonna talk a little about uh, a journal club and uh, see what Dr. Luke's been up to in terms of new trials, and then we'll get to the survey. But just to start out with this uh, study uh, presented by Dr. Atkins, uh, Jason, and also uh, Dr. Flaherty uh, did the uh, discussion of it. I wanna start out, and this is kind of the background of the study. Dr. Atkins showed this uh, uh, a study which actually started in 2015. Can you talk a little bit, uh, Jason? First of all, uh, any thoughts in general about you know kind of what was going on in 2015 when the trial was launched? What we thought we knew about melanoma at that point, and why the trial was designed? Yeah, thanks. And so obviously, thanks very much for the opportunity to participate today. Um, you know, dating back to 2015, we really were just glowing in, you know, basking in our success of recent phase three trials across a host of different BRAF and MEK combinations with PD-1 antibodies, Nevo and Pembro, and then 
you know, recently after that, then Ippy plus Nevo as combos. And so we were, it was just, uh, you know, riches everywhere. And the question really became, you know, what's the optimal sequence to give the drugs that we have? And that's, you know, what you're showing here, because there were different uh, aspects to the drugs that we were immediately obvious that, um, you know, could suggest perhaps that in different populations, one might be preferred over another. So for example, with targeted therapy, as everyone knows, you get an immediate you know, big response rate, almost everybody will respond to therapy with the criticism being that maybe on the back end patients progress more. Whereas with the combination immunotherapy, that um, really was obvious from the very beginning that there were long-term responders, despite the fact that there was a lot of toxicity where patients were often having to come off of treatment. And so that was really the rationale to say, you know, A then B or B then A kind of question. Any comments on why the decision was made in 2015 to just have an ipinevo arm and no monotherapy arm? Dr. Flaherty brought up the question in his discussion of whether or not we've really solved that ANTS question about uh, the combination versus a single agent. I thought it was decided, but you tell me, why, why wasn't there a monotherapy arm? Yeah, so it's a good question. And in fact, at, in 2015, this was actually a highly contentious issue. Uh, and some of us actually back then advocated it should have been that. Um, Dr. Atkins was one of the lead investigators in the Ipinevo development series and to this day feels very strongly that patients should get the combination whenever possible. So as he was designing the study, that was the bias towards that. I'll say in retrospect, um, I think it was a smart move actually, because I think the question of PD-1 monotherapy is probably less urgent. Uh, we'll at some point touch on this, but there's another IO combination uh, with anti-LAG3 that's likely to be approved in the coming year, which for all intents and purposes will probably make monotherapy PD-1 irrelevant in melanoma. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, and uh, you were telling me that you're thinking maybe March, uh, there's yep. the FDUFA date, so maybe yep. we'll see uh, switch in therapy, and you're right. So then the uh, control arm of monotherapy would have been outdated. This is the actual uh, design of the study, basically Ipinevo followed by Dabtrem or Dabtrem versus uh, Ipinevo. Uh, this is the first uh, slide I wanted to ask you about, uh, which is response rate. Now that top uh, light blue is the Ipinevo, right? And that, you know, IO, and then underneath it, TT targeted therapy. One of the things that surprised me is that the response rate wasn't higher in the targeted arm. I was expecting it to be, you know, 60, 70%. Any thoughts about that? Yeah, well, I think that this is probably emphasizes why it's not easy to just take the data from frontline phase three trials and think that, well, if you just go this one to that one, you'll get the same thing. Uh, here we see that the BRAF and MEK inhibitor response rate is approaching 50% of what would have been expected. And what we think is that this is probably that in real world patients or community practice patients that are participating in an ECOG trial, that probably the rates of dose reduction uh, and an intensity of therapy was probably lower than what would have been expected from an industry run phase three. Uh, and that's not bad, good or bad. You know, these are real patients in real life, but it's very well understood that if you dose reduce the BRAF inhibitor, you will lose your, your effectiveness. And so that'll be a very interesting retrospective analysis to pull out of this data was to what extent did that happen? Because yeah, I, I totally agree with you. That's probably the reason there's such a big difference. And although Dr. Atkins made the point that he felt like uh, one of the keys to the survival benefit was, was the second line anti-BRAF in patients who you know, needed it after Ipinevo first line, here's the duration of response. And of course, this gets talked about, Ipinevo is talked about, I feel like, in every solid tumor nowadays, 
people always talk about this, but here's some in pretty interesting data about duration of response. I guess not a gigantic surprise. No, you know, for ipinevo responders, you know, the, the dogma is that they basically never progress. Obviously, some of them do, but you can see that that's really the major driver is the responders with ipinevo just do very, very well over a long period of time, whereas targeted therapy is highly effective, but, you know, generally speaking, only for a period of time. So I've got to say one other thing about this trial that really confused me, which was, I guess, because of statistical reasons, or who knows, I'm not sure exactly why, but I imagine the statistical reasons, they didn't present a hazard rate. I've never seen a phase three trial data set. I mean, maybe there is one. Audience, you tell me if you've ever seen a, a trial like this. If you look at this slide here, here's progression-free survival. You can see at two years, it's 42% versus 19%. But I don't, I don't see a hazard rate here. I guess it, you see a p-value, 0.05, but you know, it looks like it'd be about 50%. And I, I guess, again, for statistical reasons, they wouldn't present that. But do you, do you sort of look at this as a doubling of uh, progression-free survival? Uh, I do. Um, I think that that's uh, all, all good points to make. This wasn't the primary endpoint of the trial, which is one point that I would make. And so, uh, but when I look at the data, I do kind of think that, uh, albeit that progression-free survival, I think the point of this trial was to look at multiple lines of therapy as opposed to just the front line. And so that's where I think, you know, some of these other slides that talk about integrating both that outcome over two lines are really more important. Right, and maybe that's where the statistics come in. Here's another really fascinating slide. Maybe think of lung cancer, actually, believe it or not, because they have this big controversy, high PD-1, do you give IO alone or do you add in the chemo? And they're particularly worried about the early, you know, lack of benefit or difference by giving the chemo. Here, uh, this is survival. Again, no hazard rate, but it looks like it's, uh, hold on, 72% versus... Uh, 52%. So if you kind of flip that around again, it looks like maybe a doubling of, of survival here. You know, my, you know, sort of gross looking at it. But it's also interesting what you see in the first uh, six or eight months there with the DAB uh, TREM doing a little bit better. Any thoughts about that? Well, this is exactly what we would have expected, which is that those there are, you know, most patients will respond to targeted therapy. And so it's not surprising at all. In the adjuvant trials, we see the same thing, which is very few patients progress early on in treatment. Whereas it's, uh, you know, obviously some patients don't respond to immunotherapy and you can lose those pretty quickly. Uh, in fact, I had one of the patients who was early on in that in those curves who, who actually progressed very quickly and unfortunately didn't didn't do very well. So it, it certainly happens. So seeing those two lines cross, I think, is not is not the major issue. And it, it goes back to something you raised at the beginning about running in targeted therapy for a period of time before immunotherapy. But we can talk about that, obviously, as we go. And there are trials looking at that. But then and here, when you, when you were talking about the early deaths, and I guess there were 24 patients like that. Again, one of the points that Dr. Atkins made, and I don't know if this applies to your patient, is these people didn't get to second-line therapy. Either they had complications from the IOs or the progression was so bad. Is that what happened with your patient? Yeah, unfortunately, uh, my patient came in with a really heavy disease burden. We gave two doses of ipinevo, but he got hospitalized soon after the second dose. And functionally speaking, we, we did get him on some BRAF inhibitor, but he was so sick that he really didn't have a chance to benefit from it. Uh, any comments on the toxicity data that were presented? Of course, obviously, ipinevo, you know, is uh, known to cause more uh, IO issues. Again, any surprises here? 
Uh, not really surprises. I think it's just important to point out that the, there's a categorical difference, though, in the treatment-related AEs, just to your point, which is the ipinevos are causing these immune-related toxicities, which need to be aggressively managed with steroids, whereas in the targeted therapy group, probably a lot of that is, you know, LFT elevations that go away with holding the drug. And so they're quite different when we think about managing them and their significance. So Hassan in the chat room says, quote, with these curves, is there room for combination therapy like a Tezo plus targeted therapy? That's actually a question that comes up in the videos. But since he brought it up with these uh, curves, any thoughts? You know, it's, it's an intriguing question, but I think one we don't have evidence for and one that most people in the melanoma field, the answer is probably not. Um, uh, the, the issue is that for the triplet combo, when you look actually at the overall survival, it actually looks about the same as the Pembro monotherapy data from different trials. And it's not even remotely in the ballpark from Checkmate 067 for Ipinevo. And so, you know, there are there scattering, you know, a smattering of patients who might benefit from that approach, possibly, but unfortunately, at the current time, we don't know who they are. And so it's very hard to advocate that that's a good strategy outside of niche, you know, populations. Although they did bring up in those uh, 24 patients that they had high LDHs, greater tumor burden, in that kind of situation, highly symptomatic, lots of tumor, maybe brain mess, would you think about triple therapy? You know, again, same, same comment. If you go back, actually, though, to the combi, uh, to the um, Inspire 150 trial, looking at the triplet, the, the benefit was actually all in the low LDH and low tumor burden patients. So if you actually go back to the trial that established that triplet regimen, it actually doesn't support that that's a good regimen. And when you look at the data for Ipinevo, that's really our only therapy that disproportionately helps those high burden PDL one low patients. So unfortunately, if we're in a scenario where patients are progressing through Ipinevo, it, it's just bad. And, you know, we, we need better drugs. All right. So uh, let's get into the case of but one quick IO question uh, from Dr. Kumar in the chat room uh, who wants to know BRAF wild type. Is this going to be single agent IO or with lag three? And in fact, is it just going to be IO plus lag three period after next March, maybe? I think that's an, it's a hard question to answer. Uh, in my practice, for a patient who's not going on a protocol, I give Nevo plus low-dose IPI, which is a whole further complication we can talk about. But I feel very strongly that one milligram per kilogram of ipilimumab is enough. Once we have the relatlimab combo available, then it'll get even more confusing, uh, but we're not quite there yet. So this actually, again, comes up in the video, but uh, we'll bring it up now since Swati from the chat room uh, brings it up, which is stage two. And uh, I know you presented some data with IO in stage 2B, uh, and you were telling me you think this is going to get approved by the FDA in the near future. Can you comment on that? And also, what do we know about BRAF in stage 2? Yeah, good questions. So um, for those who don't follow melanoma super closely, uh, an idiosyncrasy in the AJCC staging system is such that the risk or the melanoma-specific survival for stage 2B and 2C is in fact worse than stage 3A and 3B. Yet, anti-PD-1 and BRAF inhibitors have been approved for stage 3 now for several years, but they're not approved for stage 2. So to address that, we performed a trial called Keynote 716, which we presented at ESMO and then updated at SMR, showing that they, you know, giving pembrolizumab to high-risk stage 2B and 2C versus placebo with a major benefit, just as you would expect, you know, is just the same as stage 3. And so the PDUFA date for the FDA review for stage 2 
uh, disease for pembrolizumab is actually next week on December 4th. And we're fully expecting that the drug will be approved then and likely endorsed by NCCN and hopefully then available for patients soon thereafter. From that study, we don't have data yet about BRAF status, but based on other trials, we would actually expect that the BRAF inhibitor patients would actually do even better than the BRAF wild type. That's what we've seen in other studies. We were talking last week on a lung cancer program, which, of course, as you know, in the last ASCO meeting, there was an adjuvant IO trial with a TESA that's positive, so they're all scrambling around trying to figure out what to do there. It came up also with the adjuvant osimertinib trial the year before, which is this concept that comes out of breast cancer, relative risk reduction, which is that once you establish what the risk is and the impact of an adjuvant therapy, theoretically, you should be able to apply that as you go down the absolute risk to lower stage disease. Do you think that model applies to, uh, be, uh, to uh, melanoma? And for example, do you think there's a, there would be a benefit to BRAF in stage two disease? Uh, so yes and yes are the answers. And so, you know, at the hazard ratio for reduction of recurrence is 0.5 in stage three. If we're stating that the melanoma specific survival for stage 2B and 2C is the same, then it's probably going to be reduced by 50%, just the same. And in fact, that's basically what we saw in the trial. So as long as we can detail out who's actually high risk, then I think that that will probably carry through with a similar hazard for reduction. There actually is a stage two BRAF trial that's being planned. It hasn't quite launched yet. It's an EURTC trial that'll be run in Europe for encorafenib and binimetinib. Uh, and that trial is gonna incorporate into it a risk stratification tool, which is a gene expression test to try to predict who is at the highest risk of recurrence beyond just AJCC. And I think that gets to the next generation of adjuvant therapies for melanoma. Obviously we don't wanna have to treat all patients. So rather we would like to be able to select who's truly gonna recur. And there are a number of tests, assays that are out there and trial designs that are being considered to try to better answer that. I guess Ipinevo didn't do all that great in the adjuvant setting, but what about LAG3? Is that going to be looked at or has it been looked at? Yeah, so there's an adjuvant LAG3 trial for stage three melanoma that's already open for accrual. I don't remember the name of it, but it's ongoing now. There's also an adjuvant study for nivolumab plus bempegaldis leukine, the modified IL-2 molecule in stage three disease. So a lot of adjuvant stuff ongoing right now in stage three and even in stage two with BRAF, as I mentioned before. All right, well, let's get down to some uh, real cases uh, from the real world, as they say. We're going to start out with some metastatic cases because we've just been talking about DreamSeq, and then we'll get into the adjuvant setting. We're going to start out uh, start out with Dr. Lipson's top 10 list for you, and number one is a 55-year-old woman with a previous history of inflammatory bowel disease who has stage 4 disease, low LDH, low tumor burden, and the question is, what do you do with a patient like this in the metastatic setting? We just saw the DreamSeq study, but how about in this situation where you really don't want to be using an IO unless absolutely necessary, or maybe not, period. Here's Dr. Lipson. Jason, 55-year-old female with inflammatory bowel disease and metastatic BRF V600K melanoma. Patient has a normal serum LDH and a low tumor burden, so small METs typically few in number and small, meaning a centimeter or maybe a centimeter and a half. In patients like this, especially in folks who have a low LDH and a low tumor burden, there's some support for starting with BRAF-MEC inhibitors. In this case, I think out of caution, we might actually recommend that we start with a combination like ankorafenib and benimetinib. 
It also gets into too, uh, also the issue of uh, prior autoimmune disease, prior transplants, and using IO. Of course, this is a question that comes up in so many different solid tumors. Any comments on this case? Yes, yeah, so I think Dr. Lipson really hit it on the nail on the head. Even if you took away the autoimmunity part of this, and this would actually be a patient that prioritizing BRAF and MEK inhibition really could be a good idea. When we look at the patients who have really long-term survival on the BRAF and MEK trials, and there are some, there's about 20% of patients who at five years are still alive on those trials. This is exactly that kind of patient. So I would completely agree with him that starting uh, Encobini or Dabtram or whatever BRAF MEK combo would be totally reasonable. And then if you add on top of that, the risk associated with autoimmune flare, I think this one's actually a pretty straightforward one. I think we'd probably all agree that's how we would want to proceed. I think the harder question would be is, you know, a year later, if they progress, then what do you do? But, you know, we'll leave that to the next case. Well, let me just ask you about that, though, because, again, you know, I know this comes up all the time. And you all do tons of transplants there at, uh, at, at UPFC, you know, PC. Um, in terms of prior autoimmune disease, one thing I've heard from people is if they're on, if they're not on therapy, that, you know, maybe that's not, you know, depends on what it is, you know, Crohn's disease, uh, bowel problems, uh, lung disease. Multiple sclerosis, people seem to shy away from big time. How do you sort of think through, let's start with the metastatic setting, because obviously very different in the adjuvant setting. How do you think through IOs in the metastatic setting uh, in terms of prior autoimmune disease and also solid organ transplants? Yep. So I really, you know, engage with the patient about how significant is this autoimmunity? You know, some patients have RA, meaning that they took Plaquenil 20 years ago or something. And for those patients, I really tend to be pretty aggressive and even go with combination IO. You know, that's very different though. If somebody has, you know, primary biliary uh, sclerosis or they have MS, like you talked about, um, then, you know, then you're, you're, you're consenting for the patient has to include the idea that they might die as a consequence of the drug. And that's pretty scary. So in those patients, you know, I tend to give monotherapy. Um, I'll, a quick case report, though. We had a patient who had a cardiac transplant, developed terrible metastatic melanoma. And I talked to him three times and told him, hey, man, we're either going to cure you or we're going to kill you. And he said, you know what? I'm dying of this cancer. It's growing really fast. Let's do it. Okay. So we did it. And he responded. And he was fine. And he got pembrolizumab monotherapy. So uh, the point is that you have to engage with the patient. And you have to be realistic about what's possible. And, you know, that's joint decision-making about, you know, how, what do the patients value and what risk are they willing to tolerate? It's one of the more complicated decisions, I think, in all of medicine. We're actually presenting a case of primary cirrhosis in a patient with tri metastatic triple negative breast cancer next week at the San Antonio meeting. I'm guessing they're not going to want to give IOs in that situation. Anyhow, let's get back to uh, the cases. We have a patient from Dr. Uh, Shamim, 66-year-old man who, interestingly, initially got treated 2001 at adjuvant interferon and presents uh, this uh, past March uh, with neurologic symptoms, big cerebellar mass, uh, vasogenic edema, uh, edema has that taken out, but also found, found to have extensive metastatic disease. Uh, here's Dr. Shamim. 66-year-old uh, male with remote history of cutaneous melanoma back in 2001. It involved the uh, skin on the right flank. And at that time, he got interferon. In March 21, he presented with an ataxic gait, swaying to his left side. MRI brain showed a large enhancing mass in the right cerebellum with surrounding vasogenic edema. Also, they did CT imaging, which revealed extensive disease, pulmonary nodules, osseous lesions, metacell adenopathy, soft tissue masses. He underwent an ultrasound guided biopsy of the chest soft tissue mass that showed metastatic melanoma, BRAF mutated. 
He was evaluated by neurosurgery, underwent resection of the cerebellar mass. This was followed by post-operative radiation. After discharge, he was referred to medical oncology for systemic therapy recommendations. So what would you be thinking at this point, Jason? So this is a patient presenting with uh, a high-risk disease, with bulky disease, and the involvement of the CNS. So there's really no question this one's really true. We want to get this patient to ipinevo as soon as possible. Um, we, the reason I say that is when we look at sort of uh, analyses about outcomes for patients, it's really ipinevo that gives you the best chance in brain metastases, in pdl one low, in really aggressive presentations. So there's really no question. I think you'd get 10 out of 10 for melanoma academic oncologists about trying to give ipinevo to this patient. So uh, we'll make it 11 out of 11 because that's actually what happened to the patient. Here's Dr. Shamim with the follow-up. Given volume of disease, brain metastases, I recommended combination immunotherapy with nivolumab and ipilimumab. He tolerated well induction therapy. He had an amazing response. He's had subsequent brain imaging too, which has been negative for recurrent disease. So what are your questions about his case? Frontline therapy, making the decision for immunotherapy versus BRAF-MEK inhibitors, especially for people with brain metastases. And the other question I have, if you decide to do a BRAF-MEK combination in a patient with brain metastases, is there a specific combination you pick? I haven't used Encarafin, never been a metanet. What's been their experience? Sometimes I've had patients who've had, especially with the older agents, fevers, just, just can't control the fevers. You know, try antipyretics, you know, dose reduction is just really affecting their quality of life. And then it just gets difficult. You don't know if there's underlying infection. It just becomes challenging. So uh, we'll get to some uh, other cases with issues about fever. We talked about the choice of first-line therapy. What about the choice of BRAF-MEK combination when you're going to use it? Is that based on toxicity, efficacy, or both? Uh, Bullfish, I guess is what I'd say, because I think definitely for toxicity, the encarafenib and um, uh, binimetinib combo is, is, is better tolerated without the fevers, as was noted. When you do a comparison across different trials, it also looks like the encobini combo might be more efficacious. And that's actually because dose for dose, the, the dose of encarafenib is actually higher than the brafenib. And that was uh, because when the last combo came along, they could take advantage of this concept of paradoxical MAP kinase uh, uh, blockade, where you can actually get more drug in if you add the MEK inhibitor. And so in my practice, I do prefer to go with Encobini um, relative to Damtram for both of those reasons, which I've had patients who progressed on Dabrafenib, Trimetinib who responded to Encobini. And certainly in my experience, it's better tolerated. It was really interesting what you were saying before about the dose response relationship with BRAF uh, therapy. I kind of haven't heard that before. Do we know like how low you can go with the three triplets? Um, well, no, you'll get responses even at very low doses. The, the issue is the durability and the depth of those responses, hmm. right? So we know even from the Vemurafenib days, way back in the days, um, I say that as a relatively young oncologist, I guess, but even at lower doses of Vemurafenib, there were responders, right? The question is just how deep do the responses go? Way back in the days is 2015, I think, in general. So uh, before I go on, I got to just read a comment from the chat room. I don't know if you know who Chuck Riggs is, but Chuck Riggs says, quote, I know it's not the most medical observation, but I really admire a scientist who has a sketch of a cornet in the office. Makes me think we need to get ASCO rock and rock horn band together. And when we unvirtualize, quote, let it roll. So are you a okay. musician? I 
Yeah, in fact, um, we we have a band. It's called the Checkpoints Band. It's the House really band for the Society wow. for Immunotherapy of Cancer. We just played in Washington D.C. about two weeks ago at the Cincinnati. You're kidding! Meeting. Wow, because so, yeah, I know there's another there's another one with uh, I think uh, I'm trying to think. I think uh, uh, Bruce uh, Chesson's on it. I forget the name of them. The Oncotones. I think that's another yeah, one. There's another that competitive. One, yeah. Yeah, we have to have a big, yeah, the Oncotons. We'll have to have a, like a, maybe a, we'll do a little uh, Woodstock sometime. There we go. All right, so let's get on to another uh, uh, Lip, Dr. Lipson's top 10. Uh, here's a couple more questions for you to think about, uh, Jason. In the last few years, a triple therapy combination, atezolizumab plus femurafenib and cobimetinib, has been approved by the FDA for patients with advanced BRAF E600 mutant melanoma. Can you talk a little bit about the patient population where this treatment regimen might be appropriate? Femurafenib, of course, is associated with photosensitivity. Can you talk a bit about the counseling that you give to patients who are on femurafenib about staying safe in the sun? In some patients who are on BRAF and MEK inhibitor combinations, fatigue and just sort of a low energy state and some brain fogginess often becomes a common refrain. Can you talk about how you manage those patients, in particular dose interruptions and also dose reductions for patients who complain of those sorts of things? So uh, the last one of these, we had Georgina Long from Australia talking about uh, how she has her patients protected from the sun there. And that was actually a, a scary thing to listen to. That sounds really challenging down there. Anyhow, uh, any comments about these questions? First of all, the triplet, I think we talked about it a little bit before, but also some of these uh, other problems, people think about fevers, et cetera. The other issues that Jason brings up, photosensitivity and, quote, brain fog. So the, for the question about which patients would you choose to do triplet therapy in, I think that's a really tough question. And in my practice, I don't know of a population that I would do that um, there are, uh, outright. So there are patients where I might who have high risk disease where I might give ipinevo, and if they're progressing and they have to transition to BRAF inhibitor because say after one or two doses, they're just not, they're clearly worsening. Those patients I might give the triplet too, but it's important to point out that that wasn't the population studied in the trial. Um, and so what is the outcome of those patients? Well, nobody really knows. That's when you're kind of reaching for the kitchen sink to just throw the plunger because you don't know what to do, right? And so I don't know a population in the front line that I'd really advocate that triplet for. Uh, that being said, certainly management of vemurafenib-associated toxicity is an important consideration. Again, dating back to the days of monotherapy vemurafenib, we used to have truck drivers whose faces half would be exposed to the sun because the other side was wow. covered, and they would come in with these things. So you wow. really do have to be careful. And so they have to have sunscreen on all the time, hats on all the time, because literally 10 minutes in the sun is enough to get a burn when patients are taking vemurafenib. This issue of the fogginess, um, I have heard patients, uh, you know, describe that. Um, again, going back to our comment about dose reductions on BRAF inhibitors, I never dose reduce BRAF inhibitors. I never do it. I do occasionally interrupt the therapy if the patients need a little bit of a break, maybe for a couple of weeks to try to give them, you know, try to get them back on track. But I do not dose reduce it for the exact reasons that we talked about, which is you attenuate the benefit. So if you have patients that are really having trouble on one combination, say it's Vemcobi, say it's Dabtram, switch to another one because it's very commonly the case when they go to the other BRAF met combo, they actually are okay and they don't have any trouble. So I, I got to ask you something that came up in the uh, discussion there because Melissa Johnson was the leading the discussion. Of course, she's a lung person and she brought up the fact that in, the, in this trial, the uh, DreamSeq, they had, I think, a couple weeks where they stopped the I.O. if they progressed with Ipinevo before they started the, uh, the, the um, anti-BRAF. 
And she was bringing up this thing that they talk about in Long, and I'm sure you, you hear about that as well, where you give somebody an IO, like Dervalumab, post-chemo radiation, then they progress two months later, you give them osimertinib, some kind of targeted therapy, and there's concern about that the prior IO increases the toxicity, osimertinib, for example, uh, uh, with pneumonitis. And actually, I didn't, Dr. Atkins says that it occurs in melanoma too, which I never heard of. And I, I'm not even sure they know whether it happens with lung or with BRAF because they're not that many patients. But what about that phenomena with IO being followed by BRAF? It's, it's absolutely true. Um, and we do see an enhancement. And so I have a couple of patients that I, I still remember, one who had very severe um, um, uveitis after switching from ipinevo onto dibrafenib and trametinib, but that patient went into a long-term benefit. To the best of my understanding, she's never progressed. And so Jeff Weber actually has proposed a study to try to find these patients because he has made this observation as well, is that people who go on to get BRAF inhibitors after IO seem to do a lot better than patients who otherwise did not in the front line. So it's anecdotal, but certainly you should be aware that the likelihood of toxicity is higher if patients are transitioning over from ipinevo onto BRAF and MEK inhibitors. And actually, Dr. Atkins made a fascinating comment that I think the lung people ought to think about, which is he said he thought that the anti-tumor benefits of the BRAF outweighed the toxicities. They just give them the BRAF and deal with the toxicity later. I don't know if that would apply to uh, lung cancer and, and this other scenario, but I thought it was uh, a really interesting uh, comment there. Um, let's go on uh, to another case, actually. This is a patient of Dr. Syed Jafar, who has a 69-year-old man. Uh, who starts uh, out with stage 3B, uh, actually gets adjuvant dab trim. He has lots of problems with fevers and uh, tolerability uh, and uh, ends up uh, stopping it, uh, has locally recurrent disease, uh, treats with Pembro, doesn't have a response, and uh, switches to Encobeni, does respond, now has disease progression. Are there any experimental approaches that might be considered? Uh, here's Dr. Zafar. 69-year-old patient, diabetes, high blood pressure, hypothyroidism, otherwise reasonable shape. He had T3 disease with two lymph nodes. He had a BRFE 600K mutation positive, so at that time, stage three. So we started him on adjuvant daptrem. He was on for about six months, but had a horrible time tolerating it, especially with fevers, malaise, asthenia some EKG issues or that required some you know, cardiologists to take a look at his QTCs every once in a while. So despite dose reduction, we decided he's not going to do it. So he stopped at six months. So in 2018, recurrent disease, locally advanced, but there was no systemic metastases. Brain was clear. We started him on Pembro and he progressed. Then we started him on Ecobini and he had some partial response and it progressed, is in reasonable shape. I would like to know, you know, the, the faculty as in a BRFV600K positive patient, progressive disease, what are their thoughts about next line agents? Any thoughts? Well, the, the really obvious one that stands out is the patient has not received ipilimumab. And so we performed a prospective phase two trial looking at patients who progressed on anti-PD-1, continuing PD-1 and adding IPI, and we showed a 30% response rate. And that was a prospective phase two trial, and the group at MIA in Australia retrospectively found the same thing, 
which is our 30% response rate for adding IPI onto a PD-1 after progression. So in this patient, the standard of care option is very clear. The patient should get IPI, uh, and, or IPI with a PD-1. And the question is really what dose. In my practice, I would give the low dose of one mg per kg. That's what we did in our trial when we showed the 30% response rate. But you know, some people give IPI-NEVO also. So that's really the clear answer of what would be done standard of care. You know, there are a lot of things going on in the field in terms of other options. We talked about relatlimab likely to be approved in say, you know, in March, hopefully of next year. Uh, there's also a lot of interest around uh, tumor infiltrating lymphocytes. So TIL therapy, this patient might be on the older side because lymphodepletion associated with TIL therapy is obviously a big deal, uh, but there's a lot going on. And so many, many clinical trials that the patient could be considered for if, if they were interested. Question in the chat room from Rubing. What's the response in the brain? Uh, she um, stated here Enco Binny, but I would just say in general with uh, BRAF MET combinations. Yeah. So the Encobini study is ongoing for studying response in the brain. What we know from dabrafenib and trametinib is that the response is a little bit better than half of what it is systemically. So if we're expecting BRAF and MEC to be about a 60 to 70% response rate in the brain, we see it's more about 40% with dabrafenib trametinib. Uh, and that the PFS is also quite short. So um, there, with dabrafenib and trametinib, the PFS was about six months. Realizing that systemically, it's more like about 11 months. So BRAF and MEC does work in the brain, but you should have expectations that the patients are not going to respond as well, and they're not going to have as durable responses. And again, this emphasizes why with brain mets, we really want to get the patients to IPI plus NEVO as soon as we can. So re related question in the chat room from Swati, which is, do you radiate asymptomatic brain mets or, you know, can you treat systemically? Right. So this is pretty clear in the field now as well. So the Checkmate 204 study studied this population of asymptomatic brain mets and showed that you do not need to radiate those brain mets. Now, it's a pretty select population of patients who present with asymptomatic brain mets. So, you know, most of the time a patient will have some symptoms, a headache, right, some level of edema. You might want to radiate that one lesion that's causing the symptoms and leave the rest alone and then give ipinevo. But the key for those patients is to get them on combination IO off steroids as soon as possible. Because clearly from Checkmate 204, more than 50% of those patients at more than three years are going to be in are going to be responding still. Interesting. So let's get into the adjuvant setting. Lots of controversy there as well. Uh, we have a patient from Dr. Elizabeth Guanchal, a 79-year-old man with stage 3C disease, uh, past history of atrial fibrillation, had a TIA, uh, presented in uh, 2020 uh, with this uh, stage 3 disease, and uh, ended up getting adjuvant nevo, but progressed in a couple months and got switched on to uh, targeted therapy. Here's Dr. Guanchal. We knew about the BRAF mutation when he was just coming out of surgery and we were deciding on appropriate therapy. So how do you choose between adjuvant immune therapy versus a targeted therapy for these patients? That's, I think, really the big question in his case. And for him, he progressed while he was on adjuvant immune therapy, nivolumab, within just a couple of months. So any thoughts about this case? And can you maybe talk a little bit about how you think through a choice of adjuvant uh, treatment? Yeah, so we really don't have head-to-head -head data. Really what we have is looking at the shape of the curves for the phase three trials of either PD-1 antibodies or BRAF and MEK. And so certainly in patients who seem to be at high risk for recurrence immediately, there, there, it does seem attractive to start the targeted therapy because when you look at the curves, almost nobody progresses in the first year. Now, unfortunately, in year two, people really start dropping off. And so it's, it's sort of like, you know, when do you bite the bullet? 
Um, you know, when I think about BRAF and MEK inhibition, I do think it's very attractive to consider it for patients in the adjuvant setting. And that's because from basically every study of BRAF inhibitors, we see that the lower the volume of disease, the more likely the patient is to get a very long-term benefit. So certainly thinking about it in the adjuvant setting is a very smart move because as you save it for metastatic disease, the benefit just tends to be lower in terms of the response rate and the duration of response if you wait till after ipinevo. And that's kind of what we're you know, seeing through all this data that we've been talking about. So there isn't really a, a, a true you know, evidence-based way to choose between the two approaches. Um, but I think considering BRAF inhibition is very reasonable. Um, one other point real quick is another um, sort of thing in the field is about these hormone-based toxicities in the adjuvant setting for anti-PD-1. So high-grade toxicities aren't common, but they can definitely happen. And so, you know, 5% of patients in Keynote 54 for stage 3 pembrolizumab developed hypophysitis or type 1 diabetes, and those are lifelong toxicities. And so, especially in younger patients, you know, where you want to help them, but you don't want to do harm, again, thinking about targeted therapy for adjuvant is, I think, a very attractive approach. So, you know, it's interesting when the data first came out, I think it was an ESMO meeting, all of a sudden the adjuvant data, you know, came out. I kind of got the feeling when I was talking to investigators, the initial response was more towards IO. You know, there's just a general affection for IOs from the metastatic setting, prolonged response, et cetera. And then I started to hear more what you were just saying, concern about irreversible side effects, the diabetes, hypophysitis. You mentioned and you know switching to a DAB or to you know a BRAF inhibition. Any other thoughts? Any situations where you would use an IO? Well, I mean, a lot of it is patient preference driven as well, right? Since we don't, so we have equipoise, we can't choose one or the other. A lot of patients come in saying, hey, I heard about this immunotherapy and I like the idea of that. And, you know, it's also often the case that we get patients, despite that case, many of the patients that we get, we actually don't know the BRAF status right away. So it's just functionally speaking, easier to start them on immunotherapy. And so all of these things I think go into it and there's no right or wrong answer per se. So uh, Dr. Kumar in the chat room uh, brings up an interesting thought, uh, which actually we showed that uh, the uh, result of the survey and a couple of the investigators, if we get to that, uh, said in a highly symptomatic patient with metastatic disease, they might give a short course of anti-BRAF therapy. That's what Dr. Kumar is talking about. What do you know about this kind of strategy to you know, use BRAF first, sort of calm the tumor down before you give IO? Yep. So not even just to calm the tumor down, but there's a lot of data actually translational and from patient tumor biopsies that early after the initiation of BRAF inhibitors, there's actually an influx of lymphocytes into the melanoma cancer. And that's actually was one of the reasons that those triplet regiments of BRAF MEK PD-1 were initially launched. I think what's hard about that is that at the time of progression, it appears that those lymphocytes are lost. In other words, the progression event actually leads to an immune suppressed tumor in micro microenvironment. And this get really gets us to the edge of what we truly understand versus kind of, you know, just kind of bandy about. But this idea of a short course of BRAF to, to cytoreduce, but also prime the immune system, I think is something that actually is of a lot of interest and deserves further study in our field. Really uh, interesting. So uh, I'm going to go on to uh, another case. And, you know, just like uh, in the adjuvant setting uh, where long, we saw a neoadjuvant trial at ASCO also that got a lot of people's attention as well. And uh, Evan has a, a patient in his 40s who has a very large uh, primary lesion, BRAF uh, mutated 
where the question of neoadjuvant therapy has come up, and if you're going to use it, which one? Here's Dr. Lipson. We saw a patient not too long ago who was in his late 40s and who came in with a resectable but quite large melanoma tumor on his left upper extremity. We talked with him about the possibility of using neoadjuvant therapy, either BRAF-MEC inhibitors because he had a BRAF mutation or immunotherapy. And then once he'd had, say, 12 or 16 weeks going to the operating room to remove the tumor. Can you talk a bit about how you might approach a patient like that and whether targeted therapy or immunotherapy might be a better option for him? So it looks like uh, the faculty doesn't use uh, neoadjuvant therapy outside of a trial setting. What are your thoughts about neoadjuvant therapy now and in the future? Neoadjuvant therapy is an enticing area in melanoma where there's preliminary data that suggests this could be something that could be really important for our field, but is not ready for prime time yet. So in an aggregated series of across about four or five neoadjuvant trials, what was observed was that those patients who got a pathologic complete response to immunotherapy almost never recurred. Whereas if you had even a pathologic response to targeted therapy, meaning the tumor was gone at the time of surgery, about 50% of those patients recurred. And so from my perspective, I would really recommend such a patient be referred for a clinical trial. But if you were going to do it, I would absolutely give immunotherapy as the neoadjuvant approach because um, th those data really suggest that for patients who respond, you, you may actually be curing them with neoadjuvant approaches. And in that setting, I, again, really advocate for the PD-1 plus low-dose ipilimumab, the one mg per kg, and usually we give a couple of cycles of that. But again, this is still a research strategy, and there are clinical trials for this. I don't, I don't think it's really ready for prime time all over the place. You know, I'm still sort of rolling around in my mind something you said, because I also heard it from Dr. Atkins in that presentation, which is, quote, that uh, anti-BRAF therapy works better in the adjuvant setting. And you said something, you said targeted therapy works better. And I was immediately thinking about lung, because you have the adjuvant osomertinib study versus metastatic disease. I don't know if you can really make that kind of analogy. But do you want to elaborate a little bit more about this idea that targeted therapy works better in the adjuvant or low tumor burden setting and why that is? Well, why it is, I think, is probably a complexity of cancer that I don't want to make the claim that I'm certain, you know, the one who knows the answer. But, you know, when you conceptually think about the number of clones within a tumor, the number of potential cells that could have a pre-existent resistance mechanism in a low volume or adjuvant state is obviously going to be much lower than in a bulky tumor where you can, you know, see millions of cells on a CT scan. And I think that's, that's really the, the, the rationale is that the plasticity of the tumor is going to be less if the tumor is smaller. And I think that that's probably the same as we always thought about chemotherapy, right? With resistance to chemotherapy is that start with a smaller tumor, you're going to have less likely you're going to have outgrowth from resistant clones. And I, I think it's the same concept. Interesting. So one more case. This is a patient from of Dr. Alan Friedman, who started out uh, with a localized disease in uh, 2003, got, actually uh, got adjuvant interferon. Uh, then in 2018, uh, melanoma in the axillary nodes with a, a positive node involvement, uh, got nivolumab for three months, uh, progressed, and then got dab-trem, but had a lot of problems with uh, fevers, et cetera. Here's Dr. Friedman. He began nivolumab, and within three months, he had a new left neck mass. And biopsy of one of these areas in the neck showed melanoma, he had a left neck dissection that showed 33 positive lymph nodes. 
So nivolumab was stopped, and he was switched to dibrafenib and trametinib, and he was really plagued with fever, myalgias, headache, and fatigue, and was quite incapacitating. Sometimes his temperature goes up to 104 degrees, and he improves with holding the therapy, but then on reinstitution, he still has a recurrence of these symptoms, and it's making it very problematic in continuing therapy. We know that he's at very high risk, and we think we should be continuing a dual-targeted approach. Would it be reasonable to consider a different combination of BRAF-MEC besides dibrafenib and trametinib? And how does one decide among the three available combinations? And actually, uh, Evan was telling me, I didn't know this, that at the beginning of the pandemic, the NCCN uh, made some kind of statement about using Encobiti in the adjuvant setting because there's less fevers and you know, confusion with COVID, et cetera, et cetera. You want to know whether or not anybody still does that. Any thoughts about, is a, the most common question is about the fevers. What's your experience with fevers? And how do you deal with it? So the case as presented is actually more common than, you, you know, unfortunately that we would want. It certainly happens. And we have patients who have these really recurrent fevers with the brafenib and trametinib. So usually what I do is I try to give the patient a week, at least a week, maybe two weeks break. Then I come back to it. If it happens again, we'll try to give it one more run. If it happens a third time, then they're done with the brafenib and trametinib um, because it really can be debilitating. The patients end up in the hospital with dehydration. Um, as to whether or not to switch to Encobini in the adjuvant setting, I think um, I think it makes sense. Um, those two drugs are not approved in the adjuvant setting, however. So the question is really just, will the insurance pay for it? Um, and so in a context of a CME, I wouldn't advocate for that, but I would say scientifically, it makes tons of sense. Uh, that clinical trial will never get done, of course, because that's going to, it would take forever. And, you know, what would the control arm be and all this kind of stuff. But I would say that if you needed to, you could certainly switch. Uh, that being said, if you gave adjuvant therapy, you know, it isn't really clear how much adjuvant therapy somebody really needs. And so it isn't necessarily the case you have to get them back on treatment. Rather, monitoring them could be a very reasonable approach as well. What is the most common tolerability issue that you see with Encobini? Um, there really, it doesn't come up that often. Um, sometimes fatigue can be something that patients can complain of. That's really probably the, the big one. Um, but there isn't really a big one that pops out in the same way that the fevers happen with the brafenib and the skin phototoxicities happen with venurafenib. It's not really the same with encorafenib and binibetinib. We just don't see those kinds of really reoccurring obvious toxicities. So I want to move on now. We have a mini journal club here. There's a paper that you did that I wanted to ask you about because everybody knows I love trials and progress papers. This is from the last ASCO meeting. This is a fascinating, uh, I guess, early look uh, at uh, com combining uh, BRAF and IO. Can you talk a little bit about uh, sort of the background to this study, uh, what you're doing, and, um, you know, where things are nowadays? Yeah, so, um, so the, the quad study, as we called it, is really trying to study the intersection of targeted therapy with doublet immunotherapy in those patients who have such high-risk disease that you don't really have another choice. So if you look on the right-hand side for the population, you see this patients with brain metastases or patients with elevated LDH and liver metastases or some of largest diameters, more than 44 millimeters. So these are all factors that when you look at regression tree analyses from any clinical trial in melanoma, predict for very bad outcomes. 
And all of the people listening and who have presented these cases, they know of patients that they have where you just have to hit the patient with the kitchen sink because you don't have another choice. And so really the question is, what is that tolerability of that quadruplet regimen and how well does it really work? These patients were all excluded from the clinical trials and that's why we wanted to pursue this. Again, we use the low dose ipilimumab strategy in this quadruplet uh, study. And I can say anecdotally from practice, I've given this regimen to more than 10 patients and it's tolerated just as well as the triplet would be tolerated. Patients can get fevers, but you know, if you take breaks, you can then uh, um, you know, get around that problem. So uh, in a second, I want to go into uh, some of the questions we asked the faculty about their usual treatment practices. Um, and, but first, a quick question again from the chat room. You mentioned low-dose IPI a number of times. Is that basically what you always use, or are there other situations where you use the more standard dose? Yeah, so this is controversial, and some of my friends like Evan might argue with me about it, but yes, I only use the low-dose ipilimumab regimen, and if you want to know more about that, you can look for an editorial that actually Max Jamison Lee, my fellow, and I wrote in Clinical Cancer Research about two months ago, laying out that across about four different clinical trials now, the data for Nevo plus low-dose ipilimumab looks exactly the same as the full-dose ipilimumab regimen, except the toxicity is less than half of what you get when you use the three milligrams per kilogram in combination with anti-PD-1. So I have very good friends, Jeff Weber, Omid Hamid, they're gonna yell at me after they hear this, but that is my practice. And I think that all of the data support that you reduce toxicity and you maintain the benefit by giving the one milligram per kilogram ipilimumab regimen in combination with anti-PD-1. So I wanna get into a few of these uh, questions we posed uh, to the faculty. I'm gonna start out uh, with uh, metastatic disease. So patient here, we're talking about a patient who's asymptomatic, who's younger, clinically stable, BRAF, a mutant disease. I call this a consensus. Any comments? Well, I think this goes to the DreamSeq results and what the field already kind of expected that trial to show. In BRAF mutant patients, we actually see that the response rate and overall survival are actually better in the BRAF mutant arm than the BRAF wild type with immunotherapy. And so we've known for a while that you can really get a major benefit. And again, because of the long-term six and a half year survival that was updated for Checkmate 067, I think the default is to try to be as aggressive as possible with the BRAF mutant disease. So here's another scenario. I showed this earlier. I thought it was pretty interesting. A symptomatic patient with extensive BRAF mutant disease. And most people still stick with Ipinevo, but two of the docs, uh, Dr. Hamid and Dr. Weber say give uh, BRAF first. Any uh, comments? I, I think this probably goes to a little bit more nuance of what, what constitutes symptomatic, how symptomatic are patients. Um, and so that, that strategy of using targeted therapy as a run-in, I think is attractive, but not well studied. And so in my practice, um, you know, I find that patients respond just as well to ipinevo if they're going to respond, whether or not we start with BRAF mech or not. And so it's not that one of those is right or wrong per se. I think it's more that if you're going to, that people have confidence that if you use Nevo plus Ipi, the long-term outcomes will end up being similar to what would have happened if you had started with the targeted therapy and then switched. So a couple of adjuvant questions. Uh, we said you have a younger patient stage 3B disease, three positive nodes. Everybody says IO, except Dr. Snoll, who says uh, DAB-TREM. Any comments? 
Well, um, so this is that area of controversy that we were talking about, weighting the potential for long-term endocrinopathies associated with immunotherapy. So Dr. Schnoll has actually been um, a leading voice, shall we say, in the use of targeted therapy in this scenario. But I think a lot of us um, find that the ease of giving immunotherapy and the relative infrequency of those events still bias towards using immunotherapy, uh, even in that uh, adjuvant setting. Can you talk a little bit about in what situations uh, you use uh, IO monotherapy in metastatic disease? I almost never use IO monotherapy in metastatic disease. Um, the population of patients where you might do so, uh, like I said, I had this patient who had a transplant and where the risk was just astronomically high, we could really hurt them. That was a patient where I used monotherapy, someone with autoimmunity. But really in my practice, um, I'm going to give PD-1 with low-dose IPI to almost anybody who isn't otherwise going on a protocol because the, the outcomes, I think, just really look to be improved uh, with that combination. Uh, any other uh, data sets or uh, FDA uh, evaluations that are coming up in melanoma? Any new strategies coming up? both in BRAF positive as well as wild type disease that you're excited about? Well, you know, so the stage two adjuvant data are going to be really important um, because I think it's going to massively expand the number of patients who have uh, adjuvant therapy available. So the stage 2B and 2C populations are roughly speaking the same size as all of stage three. And so that's going to be important because if patients are progressing, then they will have already seen a PD-1. So that goes then to your you know, other half of that. What about new agents? And so obviously the relatlimab anti-LAG3 combination will be very interesting if it gets approved. And then there's also a lot of emphasis and a lot of interest in the field in adoptive cell transfer of tumor infiltrating lymphocytes with TIL therapy. Uh, there's a product called Lifalucil, which has been pending FDA evaluation. And we think it's probably going to get approved next year. And if that comes in, that would also be a big deal because it looks in those data sets like the TIL infusions actually work the best in the patients who progressed rapidly on anti-PD-1. So it's actually a therapy that works the best in the population where we most need it. And so that also will be very interesting to see how it impacts on practice in 2022. Can you remind us sort of how TIL therapy goes, you know, what's done and what we know about it? Right. So we have to resect a tumor first, and then we have to, um, in the laboratory, uh, incubate it in the context. We have to pull out the immune cells, and then incubate it with interleukin-2 and other cytokines to help those tills grow up. And once they're to a um, you know, cell product density of about 10 to the 9 uh, cells, we bring the patient back and give them lymphodepleting chemotherapy and reinfuse their own tumor-infiltrating lymphocytes in conjunction with high-dose interleukin-2. And when we do that, we see that the rates of response are on the order of about 35-ish percent with very durable responders in some patients. It's important to point out, however, there's a lot of caveats to that process. You have to resect a tumor. The patient has to wait for the tills to grow. The tills might not grow. You know, lymphodepleting chemotherapy is a pretty aggressive therapy, and patients may not be able to tolerate that. And so there are a lot of caveats to that approach. But the fact that there are such good responses in the really refractory disease setting, I think, makes it of a lot of interest uh, to the field. So final question, I'm just kind of curious what kind of music the IOs or I don't remember the exact name of your group, but what kind of music are you all into? Because, you know, when we do our programs, as you know, we're into 80s, rock and roll, Crosby, Stills and Nash, et cetera. What do you all do? Uh, so it's a more of a um, um, 
sort of it's called a checkpoints band first and it's more of a blues oh, rock yeah blues, blues rock, rock band my favorite tune that we do is the joe cocker tune the letter but obviously sleep sweet home chicago and all, all your favorites that you know you might hear in a bar somewhere awesome all right well th thank you so much uh jason for uh, uh working with us today audience thank you for attending calling back tomorrow we'll hear what dr sarter has to say about lutetium and all their new things and prostate cancer be safe, stay well, and have a great night. Thanks, Jason. Hey, thanks so much for the opportunity.